The epistle is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The Gospel reading is taken from St. John. It's chapter 5, and it's beginning to read at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whoever the father, whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show you even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. 
Our Father God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we reflect on your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, Son of God. That's highly contentious for many. For Jewish people, in Jesus' day, as in our reading in St. John, we're going to look at that a bit later in the sermon, but it's equally unacceptable today. For Muslims, the whole idea is unthinkable. My father was a missionary in Egypt for many years, and in reaching out to Muslims, he said he was unable to use St. Mark's Gospel because it begins with the words, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he said at that point, you'd immediately lost your listener. And of course, non-Christians regard this as an incomprehensible oddity of Christian belief, or maybe as a charming myth on par with the activities of the gods in Homer. So two questions for us this morning. First, what does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? Now, clearly the language is anthropomorphic. How can God, who is spirit, have a human son? What is the nature of the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son? Now, the mystery of the incarnation is something which has been a challenge to theological thinkers uh, down the years, and you should be encouraged that I'm not going to give you a lecture on philosophical theology this morning. What I'm going to do is talk a little bit about the implication for Jesus' ministry of the fact that he is God's Son. So first of all, what does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? And then after that, we're going to go on and look at the question, why does it matter that Jesus is God's son? Could he not have been a great prophet? What difference does that make? So let's start with our first question. What did it imply for Jesus to be God's son? Now, there's a long tradition in the Old Testament of the Messiah, the Messiah who will come from the line of David, the kings, uh, the ancient kings of Israel. And the idea is that the king will be obedient to God as a son should be to a father. And this, uh, a very good example of this uh, tradition is in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. And halfway through the psalm, the king says... I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And that, of course, is quoted in that passage in Hebrews, which has just been read to us. Of course, this tradition prompted the question of Caiaphas, the high priest, to Jesus in Matthew 26, 63, when Jesus was on trial. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' response suggested that Son of God is more than just a formal relationship within the tradition. So he is charged with blasphemy, and from a Jewish standpoint, that was absolutely right. Let's look at this whole issue of what it means for Jesus to be God's Son and to begin with, I want us to look at this passage from John 5. The context is the angry reaction of the Jewish authorities 
to a healing on uh, the Sabbath. And that's in verse 16. Now, Jesus compounds the offense. So he says in verse 17, my father is always at work, at his work, to this very day, and I too am working. He identifies his activities with those of the father, thus implying equality with God. At least, that's what uh, they presumed, because you see at the end of verse 18, the authorities, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So how does this come about? How can Jesus be equal to God? And here are three uh, elements of this. First of all, in everything he does, the Son is dependent on the Father. Look at verse 19. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. There is, in other words, a one-to-one -one correspondence between their activities. Now, I think it's important to realize that this is not a mechanical relationship. Jesus is not manipulated or controlled by God the Father. The control comes in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. He loves him and shares his activity with him. Now, we're aware of various kinds of relationships. We're aware, for example, of the relationship between a teacher and a child, between a mentor and someone who's being mentored, between two partners. But I think, and I understand from Jewish friends, that there is something more going on here. In Jewish thought, there is an idealized relationship between a father and a son. The obedience requires the son to be the image of his father, passing on the family name, where that name is everything that the father does and lives for. So that's the model which I think we have here between God the father and God the son. And then thirdly, Jesus shares with God not just some activities, but the key activities of God. And these are two, in giving life and in pronouncing judgment. Let's just briefly look at this. In verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In other words, in creation and recreation, in life rather than death, in resurrection rather than destruction, Jesus acts as God acts. And then more, more of this in verse 22, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now judgment here infers two things, implies two things. First of all, it implies the provision of the framework for understanding good and evil in our world. And judgment is also pronouncing particular situations, behaviors, and ways of life, good or evil. And that judgment is given to the Son. 
to Jesus. So, what does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? In Jesus, we see God at work in the world, in all God's attributes and activities. Father and son cannot be disjoined. They are a unity. Now let's go to our second question. Why does it matter that Jesus was God's son? What difference did that make? When things go wrong in an organization, a human organization, a company, a school, a national sports team, then the strategy often is to bring in an outsider to turn things around. What you don't want is a consultant who provides analysis and recommendations and then goes away. What you really want is someone who not only can identify what needs to change, but actually is involved directly in implementation. Now, of course, for that person, there's a great risk. If things don't improve, on the other hand, if things do improve, they get the praise. Now, in the last sermon in this series, we saw that the human situation called for the intervention of a Messiah. But this sermon seeks to explain why the Messiah has to be God's son. And for that, we turn to our epistle, Hebrews 1. Let me remind you of verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the implication is that in some sense, Old Testament prophecy had failed to bring about change in the human condition. That, of course, was not for the want of trying. Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God. Isaiah, the compassionate nature of God. Jeremiah, the power of glory, the power of God to effect change. Moses communicated God's desire to enter into covenant on the basis of the law, a covenant which his people time and again failed to fulfill, as all the prophets lamented. If you like, they were like the consultants. They knew what the answer was, but nobody was listening. Ears were deaf, hearts were hardened, wills were stubborn. But Jesus, but Jesus, in these last days, is a new beginning a new and authoritative voice. And so, in verses 2 and 3 in Hebrews 1, who is Jesus? He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, by his powerful word. The son is not just another prophet, even a greatly superior one. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is God himself. He shares in the activity of God in creation, and he shares in the radiance of God's glory. But most importantly, He has provided the essential ingredient for change. That brief phrase at the end of verse 3, 
after he had provided purification for sins. It was only Christ's sacrificial death on the cross which would bring about a resolution of the problem of human sin. And only the sinless Son of God can do that. Anselm was an 11th century theologian who also became Archbishop of Canterbury. And he explained why the Son of God was necessary in the following way. Now, this is uh, a very quick summary of what is a very uh, well-nuanced argument. But it runs something like this. Our starting point is that our sin and fallenness imply that we cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do. But since the problem is our sin, the repairing of our relationship from, with God must in some way come from us, from humanity. And so you get this paradox, only God can save us, but only we should. And that, of course, means that we need a God-man to fill both those slots, Jesus Christ, to make satisfaction for our sins. What does all this mean for us? When we read God's Word, we're often looking for applications in our daily lives, in the life of our community. We're looking for guidance about how to live our lives, how in practice to love our neighbor, how to worship God when we meet together. But there is another kind of application of Christian truth, which is our understanding of who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, what are his purposes for human history, and where it will all end. And why are these important? Because they profoundly affect our attitudes in daily life. These are the things which are going to affect the way we will act when we get up in the morning. I think one of the main things we lack in our culture is hope. We live in troubled times. There are many things that trouble us personally. Family relationships, personal health, financial worries, work. Or there are things that trouble us in society, the breakdown of family life, the pursuit of personal gain and personal advantage as the sole criterion of success. Or there are things that trouble us internationally, global financial instability, famine in the Horn of Africa, war and terrorism, oppressive regimes, persecution of our Christian brothers and sisters. We need hope in troubled times. So what hope can we derive from the questions we have considered today? Let me suggest four things. The first is simply God's love for his world. He's not the distant God of the deist who creates the universe and then leaves it. He's not the non-God of the atheist for whom the universe arises by chance with no purpose. 
but it is a world that he created, sustained, and cherished with purpose and meaning. Secondly, God's love is such that he longs that we should know him and be known by him as individuals. And that love is such that when things went wrong due to human sin, he took the risk of intervention by sending his son, knowing that his son must himself suffer death in order that sin and evil can be destroyed. So we're not involved in a hopeless struggle against all that is wrong in our lives and in the world. There is real hope that it can be different. And finally, human history is moving towards a goal, an end when evil and death will be destroyed, creation will be renewed, and we can be part of God's people in his eternal kingdom. Or to put it much more succinctly, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That should give us hope as we face the challenges of each day. And let's take a moment of silence just to reflect on that. Amen.